Welcome to this episode of Sermon Extras. I'm Todd Bolander, and I'm here with Jerry Caesar, pastor at Gulf Coast Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. How are you today, Jerry? I'm doing well, thank you, Todd. Last time we talked about the series Disciple 1.0 and kind of did some background to it, why Matthew, what is discipleship, and in this episode I want to move us forward. You've had eight parts so far in the series and I want to focus, last time we talked a little bit about the Beatitudes which is around parts four and five or so. And, and uh, today I want to focus on parts seven and eight about when spirituality becomes a show and then how disciples pray. So the whole segment about not doing your righteousness in front of people like the Pharisees do when Jesus turns to talk about that, and that includes the Lord's Prayer. One question I had from part seven, when spirituality becomes a show, Mm -hmm. is a lot of people will tell me that the word hypocrite means play actor in Greek. And so they'll read Jesus's statements about hypocrisy uh, or where he calls people hypocrisy, uh, hypocrites and, and say, well, in the Greek, that means play actor. So... So being a hypocrite is playing or pretending to be something you're not. Is that a fair understanding of what Jesus was trying to communicate or what that word means? Um, that's a great question because there's there's the etymology of the word, which is where it came from, and then there's how the word was used. And uh, meaning is determined by context. In other words, uh, you'll often hear the phrase, context is king. Uh, which means it rules the day. So etymology does inform our understanding of a word, um, but it isn't king. Uh, it's, it's as it were a pawn. And uh, the context of how that word was used at the time of Christ, even by Jesus in other places in Matthew's gospel, for instance, um, would support the idea that while the etymology of the word is something to the effect of two-faced, it did go back to that play acting, that that actor type of thing, the usage of the word included much more broadly wickedness in general and, and just general disregard and, 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 and disobedience to God. Of course, that doesn't mean it could never include the idea of play acting. It certainly could. And in this particular text, it certainly would be probably one of the stronger contexts for maybe supplying that innuendo. But I think if we back up, and, and think of it as more broadly wickedness, it's, it's actually more helpful in this context, um, because I don't think the Pharisees were play-acting in the sense that they really didn't mean their prayers. Um, their motives, like all of ours, were probably quite mixed. Um, and yet there was this thrust toward how others would view them and how they would pray them. But we know that the Pharisees also had this sense of wanting to honor God and wanting to be passionate for God. Um, and to call them play actors, I think, doesn't quite do justice either to them or to the texts themselves that we are looking at with that word. It's not as though they're pretending to pray. They are praying. They are praying, correct. Okay. So play actor probably doesn't quite get it or pretending doesn't. It doesn't, yeah. I mean, again, that, that kind of leans in the direction of etymology, but it's not really how the word was used and is not contextually what all is being meant there. Good. I um, 
you know, I do language study or I was trained in Greek and Latin, a little bit of Hebrew. And so I know that when I come to some of these words or one of the things I, I had to train myself out of was how when I was coming up as a teenager in the church, word studies would be done in one way. And then when I became a trained philologist, I learned to do word studies in a different way. And I think it's really important what you said about just because I can break down the parts of a word or find the root of that word, that's not the way the the word is being used um, quite frequently in a language. And I like to use the um, example with students about like butterfly doesn't have right. anything to do with butter or understand doesn't really have anything to do with where you've stood right or being under anything and your mind doesn't even think those things in english when you say the word understand right it's not even remotely close in your head right those pieces just because i can break them up doesn't mean it gets me anywhere near right. what the meaning of that word is so that's that's helpful to bring that out about hypocrites um because it isn't i, I agree with you i don't think here that these Pharisees, who sometimes we treat in the church like they're boogeymen. You, you kind of brought it up a couple of times in this series that the Pharisees aren't there as though, oh, here's this interesting historical group of people who Jesus constantly seems to be at odds with. Oh, you're, you'll never be anything like them, or right. never, never suffer from any of the same character questions that they, that they had going on. Exactly. Uh, you know, it, it seems quite plain that at least Matthew and I think the other gospel writers where they include these uh, leaders and characters, uh, remembering that they're writing oftentimes decades later, and, and in writing these accounts decades later, they have a particular audience in mind. So they, they have, like any writer would, a purpose for including this material versus whatever material they're leaving out. Uh, as John makes plain to us, uh, he didn't include everything that could be written about Jesus or the world couldn't contain the books, which even if that's hyperbole, it, it certainly gets to the point that there's plenty that more that could have been written. And so uh, in, in uh, choosing to include these interactions with the Pharisees, they have a purpose, and the purpose uh, is undoubtedly that the same dangers exist in the present-day church for them that they were writing to, and, and and we can say in the present day church right now, um, to well, our at audience the, at the time Matthew's writing, Pharisees are a real group of people, and members of the church were former Pharisees. We have right. accounts in Acts that say certain numbers of Pharisees joined. Paul himself had been raised and trained as a Pharisee, so it's not as though you have a. a I know when I read, it took me a long time to see that you're not talking about a group of people who are so far off and so um, wrong that they're not even in the church and still basically identify as, oh, if you ask me about the way I read the Old Testament or i.e. the Bible in their world, I fall into this camp, the Pharisee camp. Right, right. In that same message in part seven, you, you talk about practicing righteousness, and you made the point that righteousness there might also be understood as justice. You use the word justice there. So explain to me, if I'm, if I'm new, I'm just listening for the first time or whatever, how are you making that connection that righteousness is the word justice? 
not only in the New Testament do we have uh, the word for righteousness, but if we back up, it's built on the foundation of the Old Testament and the Hebrew usage of this language of both righteousness and justice. And of course, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and so they were functioning and working out of a Greek New Test or a Greek Old Testament at the time. We call it the Septuagint. And in the Old Testament, you had words for righteousness and justice that were used really in parallel. That the they weren't used as two distinct things, but uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. So it's it's just multiple ways of describing this one thing. And so when we come forward and we see what these words were translated to into the Greek Old Testament, we find that these very words for uh, righteousness, um, not only are they the words that were they were translated into, but that's the words Jesus is using when he's uh, speaking here in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. But also, when you look at these words and how they're used in the context of the New Testament, Jesus is using similar language, what we see in the prophets, where issues of justice in regard to righteousness were being brought out. So the, the context leans us in the direction of justice. The historic background for how they use the word leans us in the direction of justice. And for the Jewish mind, and certainly for the Christian mind, if we're listening to Jesus, righteousness is obedience to God's commands, which involve love of God and neighbor. And we know from the New Testament, uh, at least at a minimum, we know that you can't separate one from the other. So when I treat my, my brother or sister with equity, in other words, justice, I am doing righteousness. And so those words come together. So Jesus in chapter 6 of Matthew is saying, beware of practicing your ESV translation righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And you made the point that we could supply the word justice there. Right, doing justice maybe, yeah. And then he goes on to give a few examples of how not to behave while doing acts, performing acts of righteousness, and you drew out that, like in verse 3, there's giving to the needy, which we might call justice or equity, but you made the further point, and you made it a couple of times, and because I've been around for a while to hear other messages, I know that it's not uncommon for you to state that in biblical terms, in in divine terms, in God's way of thinking of justice, that justice is always united. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you, you have a distinct way of saying it, that justice and mercy are not separate concepts in the bi- biblical framework. Can you expand on that? How do you get there? Uh, because typical evangelical Protestant like like me, when mm-hmm. I came up, mm-hmm. if you talked about being interested in justice, then you were talking about people getting exactly what they deserved. Right. And then if you said the word mercy, what you meant was not that. In other words... Kind of the opposite of that, right. Right. People getting a break, uh, not getting what they deserved, getting better than they deserve. So when you come along and tell me that I should really think of them as happening together or as a united concept, why is my definition wrong then of these two words? Uh, So 
And I do bring this up a lot because I think we need to pound it into our heads. We've had the other pounded into our heads so long. And, and we, we, our jurisprudence system is one of justice. So you, justice is meeting out punishment to the wrongdoer and um, uh, setting the, the innocent one free and not giving them the punishment. And certainly in a human law court system, that's what you're looking for in terms of, of justice. However, um, God's justice, and I think probably the most succinct place we can find this meted out uh, and seen is in Hosea chapter 11, uh, verses uh, 8 and, and 9, um, about the middle of verse 8, it says, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Now, this is the Lord speaking here. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For, now he's going to tell us the reason why he's going to, what he's just described as showing mercy, having compassion. He says, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So God's reason for not meeting out wrath and for instead having compassion is because he is God and he is holy. He is completely other than man. And so when we, when we link the idea of otherness, which is really what holiness is at its core about, to God, in effect, he's saying that his holiness is other. His justice, therefore, is other than human justice. It's different than human justice. And in this case, his otherness in regard to justice says that he's going to show compassion. Um, we, we see many times throughout the Old Testament that God comes to judge and he shows mercy on those that are in need of judgment. So God's justice is not stand at opposite ends of the spectrum from God's mercy as if you have this or that, but rather God's justice always includes mercy somewhere in the mix. And, and you know, of course, it's not always easy just to figure out in every single situation what's going on here, but God's justice certainly can and always really does in some way include mercy. Can you give me an example of what you mean when you said in the sermon related to justice and mercy that God's justice is not retributive? You use that word, and if I'm new to this whole conversation, uh, I may not know what you mean by that. What is retributive justice? I believe the other version you commented on was restorative justice. So what do those two words mean, and what do you mean by God's justice isn't retributive then? Well, so when we, when we talk about retributive, using it in the sense of retribution, so God is, is justice isn't only about pouring out retribution for consequences, in effect, for what somebody has done, but rather... His justice is about restoring somebody. So in, in our justice system, um, somebody does something wrong, they go to jail. Well, that's not, that, that's not restorative. There's nothing about jail that necessarily in most cases is going to cause reform in, in the person who did that uh, or in any way restore them. And, and, of course, the stats would demonstrate that. Uh, however, uh, it is about retribution. They've done wrong, and we're going to make sure they're punished. Uh, if that were all God's justice were about, then he would uh, certainly not have saved any of us, or at a minimum, he would be rather unjust. 
Um, so God's justice, um, it it's looking to restore. Now, of course, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ throws the monkey wrench in the machinery. It's God's way of, of remaining just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus, according to Romans chapter 3. So in, in the context of the cross, God has himself borne the punishment for our sin, and therefore he's taking care of retribution in himself. So all mercy that he shows is his freely to show and remain just. Uh, so the cross is essential to understanding God's, uh, as it were, system of justice or uh, meaning of justice. And the cross, of course, is divine love expressed. In the sermon, you made the point, though, that God's righteousness or justice is never retributive, but based on what you just said, retribution being punishment for acts, I don't know. I can think of a few examples like the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or, let's say, final judgment when it, when the Bible talks about whatever the great final judgment is. That all sounds... and the way it's described sounds pretty retributive to me. It doesn't sound like uh, God's coming to m- make them better. He sounds pretty mad at them, and he's going to punish them for their deeds. Right, right, and and he does. So, for instance, let's take the flood. The purpose for the flood, or the reason for the flood, is given in the early parts of chapter 6 of Genesis. There, we, we find that uh, the earth was filled with violence, Hamas, was filled with violence, and 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 so you have uh, injustice being perpetrated upon humanity, and they were they were doing this one to another, and so his engagement to save the one just or righteous man out of the bunch was to put an end to the injustice that was taking place. So, and it was ultimately to restore the earth to a place that would. Uh, allow for justice to flourish once again, because it had gotten so evil and so corrupt that there was nothing left that was redeemable in that situation. Um, and of course, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we, we need but, you know, read the accounts of what happens to these visitors to uh, Lot's house and, and, and see what goes on in that whole interaction to realize that there was a lot of uh, injustice taking place. And so God's retribution, if you will, upon one group was his mercy upon another. Uh, it's, it's similar to when we say the Bible, you know, the gospel is good news to the poor. Well, in context, yes, it was good news to the poor, but that also meant it wasn't the best news. Maybe even we could say bad news for the rich, uh, <laughs> because uh, if we're releasing the poor from their debts, that means the rich aren't getting those debts paid back to them and or being allowed to take possession of the property. Right. And, and so what is good news for one is quite often bad news for another. So uh, what may appear to be retribution to one group is indeed restoration to the other. And God's preference is always to the weak, uh, the underprivileged, the oppressed, the victims, if you will. Okay. Yeah, that makes my mind think of the book of Nahum, and it it is a whole bunch of judgment and punishment and people getting killed with a couple of hints of, so this is going to be good news for some people. And what it turns out to be is that the massive Assyrian empire that was terribly violent and hard on the people that it conquered, well, God was going to overturn it. And so that would be the release and the 
uh, comfort for the Judeans, for God's people, that this major international powerhouse would no longer be around to oppress them so rigidly, so forcefully. So in this case, back to Matthew 6, Jesus is saying that people are going to do deeds of, perform deeds of justice, which involves mercy for some. And um, he goes on to talk about giving to the needy in the right hand, uh, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And, and you made the point in your sermon about being very careful not to be known for helping in this way. And I'm, I may be saying it in a way that you wouldn't say it, but it's because it's the question that it, it brought in my mind. You started talking about people who perform philanthropy, and you gave a couple examples like from a corporate standpoint. A, cor- a corporation loves the free advertisement, so to speak. It's not free. They're giving something away, right, but they right. get a tax benefit in our country, and there's lots of good goodwill, goodwill good uh, public relations. So is it wrong to be known for philanthropy? Is it wrong for me if, for whatever reason, I happen to have a whole bunch of money and I find a cause that I think is really good? Is it is it wrong for me to give money away and people to know about it? You know, it's interesting. Jesus didn't say you have no reward. He said you've received your reward already. So if the reward you're after is that reward of recognition and public goodwill, then there's nothing wrong at all. Go for it, enjoy it, and enjoy the reward while you have it. But if somehow you think you're laying up some sort of treasure with God in heaven because of this, what Jesus is saying is that's not how you get there, is when your motives are to be seen by others. Now, I think it gets to the issue of motives, there are certain things we might do that are found out or are seen. We didn't intend for them to be that way, and that was certainly not our motive in doing them. I don't think in that case that you know, it erases uh, the reward as, you know, we need to worry somehow, I did this, but what if somebody tells somebody, then I've lost my reward? Certainly not that. That, that is not the case. I guess it makes me think, though, and I don't think it's wrong, or but it confuses me because I just wonder... My motive, let's pretend I have loads and loads of money and I find a, a, a way to use that to really help my community uh, through some sort of nonprofit or philanthropic, and I'm doing this good thing. But someone's got to know who's running it. Like if I need assistance or there's got to be an organizational head I'm not doing it to be known. I'm doing it because it's a good thing. But because people know I don't get, like, somehow that doesn't count in the divine economy that I've gone out and I've done this good thing just because people know who's running it? No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, And that's what it gets to the point of it's about motives. So if your motive is to do the good, and if your motive... There are times when things are going to be known just because they're going to be known. There's... There's no changing that fact. Uh, I don't think we have to go to extra efforts to make sure that it's masked because sometimes that draws more attention to it in the end and makes us, you know, turn out to have made bigger attention on ourselves than what would have been. Uh, So I'm addressing the issue, and I think Jesus is addressing the issue of motives. And yet at the same time, 
if the conundrum wasn't such a real one, what he said wouldn't make sense. Right. I mean, he's saying it because it is a real living conundrum that we run into. And But like with most of the things that are in here, uh, most of the Sermon on the Mount is spoken in these sort of hyperbolic extremes. And, and case in point, you know, do not make lengthy prayers, yet Jesus prayed all night and asked the disciples to pray for one hour. Um, it's not to say that the length of the prayer was the problem, but lengthy prayers for the purpose of show, for the purpose of getting attention and garnering that attention, or, you know, it said we, we could go down the list and any of these. The problem isn't the thing itself. In fact, giving to the needy is something we're commanded to do, but it has to do more with the motives that are involved. Right. Okay. So you've come to a couple of points that I wanted to bring out. There are, there are multiple instances of the New Testament of certain people being very generous and it being apparently very publicly known within the church and so much that right. it's in it's in scripture rated right if that's even a, a real word it is i think but it <laughs> but it winds up in our new testament so i think of barnabas mm-hmm. who in acts is the is basically called out as one of the first people to sell all of his property and give it and he like everyone knows about it right so he didn't do it in secret. He didn't. He didn't seem to be ashamed of having done it. Right. He didn't. Uh, I mean, if he tried to keep it secret, he did a terrible job. Evidently, because right, right. two thousand years later, I know he did it. Right, right, right. Is he not going to get a reward in heaven for having done that? Uh, no, I, I think he will because I don't think his motive was to be seen by by people. Um, and so again, I think it gets back to motives. I think. Uh, what we see in Luke, what Luke's doing in the book of Acts and what he's communicating about is really the fulfillment of this long-awaited promise when there were no more poor. And we see that there. Um, You shall always have the poor, right, on the one hand, yet there for a moment they were not. There were no poor, not in the context of the community of God's people. Um, Yet today, uh, that is certainly not the case when we even look at the church. And so we have to ask ourselves why. Okay, that that's helpful to me, and and in some way, even as I'm talking about it, my mind is sort of saying, well, think about Ananias and Sapphira, because they actually are probably the point that you're making, is that they did want to be thought of as having donated a large sum of money when they hadn't actually donated that large sum of money. Exactly. They, they, are, uh, they are the exact case scenario, if you will, uh, in that scenario, and it didn't work out so well for them uh, in the end. In fact, they didn't even get to enjoy the momentary reward, if I recall. Right. Yeah, that didn't that backfired on them. So you're not saying it's wrong to have a good reputation for practicing good works and even philanthropic, generous works. It's not it's not wrong to be known by people as such. No, in fact, in Matthew five sixteen we're told to let our light shine before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So again, the issue boils back to, are we doing it to glorify our Father in heaven, or are we doing it to glorify ourselves? And and so, in fact, it should be that the church is known, and therefore the members in it, for their good works. But the motivation needs to be to glorify the Father, not themselves.
to your message on the Lord's Prayer in Part 8. Talk about prayer, and you just mentioned some about, on the one hand, Jesus is saying, here, here's an example of praying. I didn't spend a whole lot of time, and I, and I prayed. And then in other places, he clearly spends a great deal of time in prayer and encourages people to do so. So it's not as though the brevity of the Lord's Prayer is intended to coach us into praying briefly. Correct. Although I think Jonathan Edwards may be onto something when he said that uh, our private prayers should be long and our public prayers brief. Um, (laughs) Very few pastors ever uh, follow that advice, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's a worthy advice. Oh, that's good. Um, Yeah, no further comment. (laughs) Uh, So should... Christians memorize and recite the Lord's Prayer. I know there are some traditions where people are taught more or less that they should um, daily recite the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Do you think that that's one of the things Jesus was communicating? So should Christians memorize the Lord's Prayer? I'm going to answer that emphatically, yes. We memorize lots of Scripture, and I would certainly put that high on the list of, of Scripture we should memorize. Should we memorize it for the purpose of daily reciting it and repeating it in some sort of rote or meaningless way? No, but I do think it is an excellent practice to draw it out daily and to pray with the framework, the understanding, the requests, the things that it teaches us to do in prayer. So I would rarely, though I was taught as a child, memorize the Lord's Prayer and prayed it over and over in some sort of rote and meaningless fashion, which I reject. Uh, it is rare that a day would go by that in my prayer time I'm not starting in that framework of the Lord's Prayer and thinking through what that teaches me about how I pray that day and the things I'm facing and how they interact with this. So I don't pray it word for word, though I use often will start with a line or a phrase and then from there branch off into how that is applied in the given situation of the day. Um, so that... Uh, your name, as I like to say, it must be hallowed, um, is, it takes me uh, some time to sit and say, Lord, how are we hallowing your name? How are we profaning your name? Help us to identify and see those ways that your name is uh, prof- uh, profaned because of us rather than hallowed, and help us to be a church that in this community honors and hallows your name. Uh, and so it goes on a lot further than into just hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and, and, but it begins to inform my, my praying. Uh, to, to, to expand on that, I might even say, if we look at Paul's prayers in particular in the New Testament letters, I think that you can see that the requests in his prayers uh, are the kinds of requests that would come out of having spent time looking at the Lord's Prayer, thinking on what it's instructing us to pray, yet the language is entirely different. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the hallowing of the name, because In the sermon, you mentioned it, and you mentioned it as the opposite of profaning the name. And I walked away thinking, if I'm not, if I, if I haven't been doing this following Jesus thing for a very long time, I might not understand what any of that means. What it means to hallow something, what it means to profane something, what does that look like? And then to do it to a name, 
I'm not even sure I know what that phrase... I, I may have a con- concept of it, but I'm not sure I know what Jesus was trying to tell me about any of those things if I'm, if I'm new to this whole gig. So can you unpack what, what does it mean to hallow something or to profane it, and then what does it mean to do that to a name, let alone God's name? Right. So I'm going to start with the second part and then come back to the first part, if I might, because that's an easy one, I think. When we speak of God's name, hallowed be your name, in essence, we're speaking of his person. Um, it's not as if we need to sit down and think about all the different names God has given in Scripture. Great practice, a wonderful thing to do, but I don't think that's what it's talking about here, uh, to think about the various names God has and then, you know, give praise to each one of them or some such thing as that. Again, wonderful thing to do, but I think what Jesus is communicating is that that God the one represented by his name, is to be revered as holy. I like that sort of language of revered as holy, um, even though it's maybe not quite strictly literal. Um, it, it does bring out the idea of, of when we hallow a name, we're setting it apart. We're honoring that name. We're, we're, we're considering that name. Uh, if something is holy, it is pure, and therefore do not touch it with anything unpure. So to use that name in a crass context or in a dirty joke or uh, in, in, in cursing language would certainly not be honoring it. We're all familiar with that. You know, we don't want to take God's name in vain. But the other side of that is, is I think it's just as much to take God's name in vain if we, as Christians, that is, we bear the name of Christ, live lives that are completely contrary to the gospel. That is taking God's name in vain. Uh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. But then we look at our lives and we're cheating uh, on, on this and cheating our neighbor and we're, we're, we're swindling here. Wait a second. We're, we're, or, I mean, the, the more common things, we're just mean and rude to people. We, 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 we aren't willing to suffer a wrong, but make sure that we get everything that's our due that, that doesn't honor God's name. So profane or defile uh, in the Old Testament sense, if, if, if something was holy, it was set apart for God's use. Um, it was set apart for holy purposes. It wouldn't be used in common use. And to profane something, then, would to bring it into interaction with that which is common or unclean. So uh, a dead, if, if something touches the dead, for instance, it might become, you know, in some way unclean. Uh, you wouldn't want to take the things that were set apart for God's use and then put them on a corpse and then bring them back for God's use, it would be considered profane, defiled, made impure. Um, that language then carried forward into the prayer, I think maybe more metaphorically, when we, the people who bear his name, do not live in consistency with how he's asked us to live, we defile his name. So what is Jesus telling us we should be praying then when if if you say the way to pray it is your name must be holy or a way to pray it is to understand the force of it is your name must be made holy that doesn't sound like a prayer as much as a declaration so what does it mean to pray to God that his name must be made holy so for me, it's a prayer because it recognizes that, one, it's not being made holy now with any level of consistency. So it's an objection to that. And it's a declaration that, that 
this is what ought to be, and therefore it's what we must conform our lives to bringing about. And so within it comes that request, Lord, teach me to honor your name. Within it comes that request, Lord, help us to be a people who will honor your name. Um, so it leads me to that request. It's, uh, as I said this past week, the, those three requests uh, are a bit lament-like, I think, in, in how they're framed. And taken together, they, they remind me a lot of laments that we see in the Old Testament. So the last thing I wanted to ask about was your point about forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors or have forgiven our debtors. And you made the point that in Matthew, it seems to be about debts. Is it about something else? Because uh, you kind of made a you kind of made the point that people tend to think of it as our debt towards God in some sort of sin-guilt relationship. And so this is a request. And then Jesus even makes the point in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So there seems to be some tie somewhere along the line, but, um, and correct me if I'm not remembering it, right, but it seems that you camped first on debt and jubilee year and that I should be forgiving debts, but doesn't Luke change it entirely into sin? Correct. And didn't you say that Luke is the one who makes things plain where Matthew makes it obscure, so shouldn't I just read it as sin if Luke has made it plain that it's about sin? So, so excellent question, uh, and my answer would be no and yes. So... Oh, okay. Thank you for that. (laughs) All right. Podcast over. Yeah. So, so what I said on Sunday in in this regard was, you know, we, we very quickly move from debt to sin and that's an okay place to go because verses 14 and 15 do get us there, but let's not go too quickly there without first camping and and spending a little bit of time contemplating why would Jesus choose to use the words debt uh, and releasing of debt, forgiving of debt here, because those words are used together in the Old Testament, in the Sabbath year and Jubilee year um, uh, instructions that were there. Uh, when we get to Luke, well, Luke's already addressed the Jubilee issues in the Jubilee year uh, in, in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, 19. Um, and then in chapter 6, when he's doing his version of the Sermon on the Mount, it is very much more Jubilee year-like-esque, if you will, uh, it, 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 it releasing and forgiving and giving and all of these things that are involved there. So by the time we get to chapter 11 in the prayer, it's perfectly plain for him to have already shifted that over into talking about sin, which is fundamentally a, a vital part of what even in Matthew it's talking about according to verses 14 and 15. Uh, Matthew has it more condensed together, all in the Sermon on the Mount, whereas Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, it's, it's not as much, it's, well, the, the Lord's Prayer is not there, but it's a separate and distinct um, teaching point. And so Luke has already covered at that point um, the Jubilee year in, in fully and in, 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 in very specifically in chapter 4, but then that sets up chapter 6, and when you read chapter 6 in light of chapter 4... You, so you, chapter 4 is when he announces, is that, am I remembering this yeah, correctly? Right. He announces in the synagogue in his hometown that he's the one Isaiah's prophesying about, and the prophecy he reads, that portion of scripture, is that he's there to declare the 
what a lot of translations call the acceptable day of the Lord, um, and and that's the the jubilee that correct bringing release to captives and setting uh, people free and sight to the blind and all of that. So Luke has that as a theme, and on the front end. So by the time he has Jesus talking about the Lord's prayer, he's already addressed all of those debt-releasing, jubilee-year type of themes, whereas Matthew has pulled it forward, Correct. Has pulled the, is talking about the, the Lord's Prayer earlier right. in the midst of all of the debt-release teaching at the same time. Right, so that's why I think it's important in Matthew especially to not get off of the debt-releasing topic too quickly. Ah. But we must, we must then make the connection, because it, there is a bigger, grander issue involved, which is the spiritual forgiveness and, and release, which we deal with in the small debts every day with everyone. And mm-hmm. uh, oddly enough, I, I, my experience tells me Christians oftentimes aren't very good at, even though at, at its core, that's what our faith is about. Okay. Well, I feel challenged about that one. Uh, not so much that I'm a moneylender and have people who owe me a whole bunch of things, but again, uh, it's sort of a refrain, I guess, last time we talked, we ended on, so what do I need to do with my money now if I have some to spare? And now here we are landing on, I need to think about my money again. <laughs> <laughs> it should not surprise us, though, given what comes next in Matthew chapter 6 that we have yet to arrive at in our series. And what is that? Uh, the whole talk about where your treasure is, your heart is, you can't ah, serve God in money, okay. etc. So I've, I'm, I'm feeling the lead up then, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, you are. You are feeling the lead up. All right. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, any other thoughts before we wrap up for today? Uh, I've enjoyed this time. I enjoy each of these when we get together because it gives us a time to kind of decompress and think through a number of these things. I hope it serves folks. Um, to, to do that, uh, and it maybe even helps them where things weren't as plain as they could have been. Uh, you, you work all week on a sermon, and you get to Sunday morning, and you do your best to give it, but at the end of the day, you think, yeah, that could have been clear, or that could have been clear. There's never is a sermon finished. Um, <laughs> never is a sermon finished. Ah, well, it's a good thing you get a follow-up week. That's right. Compassionate and gracious is the Lord. This is our God. This is our God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. This is our God. This is our God. No